Lord shout a praise this morning. Hey, if you love Jesus, let me hear you say amen. Hey, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Byron. I get the great honor to be able to serve here at Redemption as the lead pastor. If you are our guest, we want to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I will say that you picked an amazing Sunday for this to be your first time because today you're going to get to hear us talk about practicing what we preach as we continue our series called We Are Redemption, learning how we experience life change through Jesus here together as a church. We're going over our core values. These are different habits and practices that don't just describe who we are at Redemption. No, they will define who we are as a church. And I can just tell you that if you begin to incorporate these five practices in your daily life, not your Sunday activity, but rather in your daily life, we can guarantee that you will experience life change through Jesus. Here's what our five core values are. If you're taking notes, we're a note-taking church. So go ahead, take some notes. Here's our five core values. I'll say them to you up front. Worship, community, evangelism, serving, and generosity. Can we all just say those out loud together? Worship, community evangelism, serving, and generosity. If you do these five things, then I can guarantee you that you will experience life change. Because here's what we recognize at Redemption, is that life change is a lifestyle, right? If you want to experience the life that Jesus has for you, then you need to adopt the lifestyle that Jesus sets before us. And, and here's what that looks like, is that each one of these values, they are not a to-do list, but rather they are a be list, that they don't just describe you, but no, they would define you, that these are not things that you do, but rather this is who God has called you to be. Week one, we learned what it means to be a worshiper, that we don't just like do worship. No, we are worshipers. We put God first in everything that we do in our lives. We're not just a community who, who just practices or plays church. No, we are a Christ-centered community at Redemption. We don't just do evangelism. No, we are evangelists on mission to share our faith with others. Next week, we're going to talk about our core value of generosity, that we don't just do generosity. No, we are generous as a church. But this week, we're going to talk about the fourth value, which is one that I think that we are probably the most strong in, and that is our core value of serving. Hey, if you're on the serve team, let's just see you raise your hand. If you're on a serve team, come on, let's give it up for all of our serve team people. Aren't they incredible? Aren't they so amazing? It's awesome to see every single week because here's what we say is that life change comes through Jesus, but it wouldn't be possible without you. That you make all of this Possible. I mean, could you imagine if like Trevor was our, our lead worship leader and he was singing songs every single week? Like, like, could you imagine that? Could you imagine if Ethan was serving in Redemption Kids, right? Could you, could you imagine what it would be like if it was only the staff that served the church? Could you imagine me just, just in the parking lot screaming at the top of my lungs, right? Hey, welcome, right? I mean, you got to understand that it takes all of us to make this happen. And so I'm so grateful for the people who serve every single week. And here's why we encourage you to serve. Here's why we encourage you to go to next steps. Because we know that life change is a lifestyle. 
Life change is what God produces inside of us to make us more like Jesus. And when it comes to the core value of serving, there is no one that models before us what it means to be a servant quite like the Lord Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, writing about Jesus. He's saying, have this in mind amongst yourselves. So think like Jesus. Have a worldview of Jesus. Have an attitude of Jesus. Be looking for opportunities like Jesus did. What what does he say? Who though he was in the form of God, Jesus fully God, but he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He goes on and here's here's what he says. He, He says that being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even to death on a cross. This is how much Jesus was willing to serve. Now, question, just raise your hand if you think that as Christians, we are supposed to be like Christ. Anybody raise your hand? You think so? That word Christian literally means little Christ. That as Christians, we are to be Christ-like. It's important for us to be like Jesus. And Paul says that the defining characteristic of life of Jesus is that he spent his time, his energy, and his, his resources in serving others. And so, if you want to experience life change, you must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That as Christians, we don't want to just uh, admire the life of Jesus. No, we aspire to be like Jesus in everything that we do. That's why we say that life change is a lifestyle. But let's just be honest that we don't live in a world that values serving others, do we? No, we, we live in a world that says, put yourself first, that you want to do what you want, when you want, however you want. We value a world that actually doesn't value things like honor and humility and sacrifice and serving, but rather we live in a world that encourages and that, that, that rewards people who are selfish and self-centered and people who are people self-promoting. We think that pride is the greatest virtue that there is. That's what our society says. Here's what the Bible says, that God opposes the proud, But our world celebrates the proud, honors the proud, throws parades for pride. That's what our world does. But that's not the picture that the Bible presents of what the good life is. See, the world encourages you to be selfish, but Jesus teaches you to be a servant. In the world, there is self-help. In the world, there is self-promotion. That's why people are self-centered and selfish. But Jesus has come to show us a different way and to show us a better way. See, here's what the world would say. The world would say is that you need to find yourself. But Jesus says you need to deny yourself. The world says you want to live the best life? Put yourself first. Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. The world says you make a life by what you get. But Jesus teaches us that we make a life by what we give. The world would say you need to put yourself first. But Jesus says to pick up your cross and to follow after him. The world says you need to love yourself. But Jesus says that we are to love God and love others as we love ourselves. We live in a world that encourages selfishness, but we serve a God who teaches us to be a servant. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to learn from the life of Jesus three lessons and why we should serve and how serving leads to life change. So if you have your Bible, go ahead, turn me to Mark chapter 10. The sermon is called, How Does Serving Lead to Life Change? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it all up front, make a couple observations. I want to give you three ways 
that serving will lead to life change. Let's read it all up front. Mark 10, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him. Who's that? It's Jesus. So they come up to Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It's all about Jesus because life change comes through Jesus. They said, teacher, we want for you to do whatever it is that we ask of you. Right, that's pretty amazing, right? They're like, we got a question, but before you answer, we need you to say yes. Like, this is what my, my girls do. They're toddlers, right? They're like, Daddy, can you do me a favor? Sure, but before I ask, you have to say yes. And so you can see Jesus, after three years being with them, he's probably getting already a little frustrated with them because they still don't get it. They still don't understand. But Jesus, he, he relents and acquiesces, and he goes, okay, go ahead and ask me your question. And here's what he says. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant to us, this is amazing, one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left in glory. They're like, Jesus, we know that whenever you uh, go to heaven, there's going to be a big chair with your name on it. And everybody's going to come worship and adore you. And angels are going to bow before you. And, and you're going to be a really big deal in heaven. And we're cool with that as long as we get a seat next to you in glory. But Jesus, we're like really, really humble. So we'll let you sit in the middle. We just want to sit on the right and the left. And, you know, like John, he's already, he's already called dibs on the right seat, so can I get on the left seat? Like, like, we're cool with you being in glory, but we want some of that glory for ourselves. Isn't that kind of how we are as a society? Even, even in the church, we're, we're kind of like that a little bit. Like, we, we, we want the glory for ourselves. We want the attention on us. We want to be able to be center. We want to be the main character of our own stories. That's how most of us are. Things haven't changed very much in 2,000 years. They're like, Jesus, can we sit in your chair? And Jesus, he responds. And as he begins to answer them, here's what he says. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink or be baptized into the baptism in which I'm baptized in? He's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. He's talking about the suffering that he is going to walk through and experience in this life. And here's what they say. They say, yeah, we can do that. We can go through it. Yeah, we can do it, whatever it takes. Like, no pain, no gain. It's all about the glory. Give me that. And Jesus goes, well, you're actually going to suffer. And you're going to be baptized in the baptism that I'm baptized in. And, and yeah, you're going to drink from the cup that I have to drink from. But then he says this. He said, he said but these chairs aren't mine to give away. He said, these, these are not for mine to give, but to those whom it has been prepared. And then whenever he says this, it says the ten, the other disciples, they heard it. And they became indignant towards James and John. They got angry at them. How dare you ask to sit in the seat of glory? I wanted to sit there. <laughs> I wanted the glory. See, James and John, they just had the boldness to say what everybody else was already thinking. Like, everybody was thinking it, but they had the nerve to actually get up and say it. This story actually comes on the heels of another story where an argument breaks out amongst the disciples where they're like, who is the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And then Jesus steps in and says, what are you guys talking about? They're like, we just want to know who the greatest is. And then Peter, he's like, don't, don't you know, I'm the greatest. I walked on water. And then John's like, no, you're not. You took three steps and you drowned. 
And then Peter's like, yeah, but that's three more steps than you ever took. And then John's like, well, you know, I am the beloved one. Like when John's writing his gospel, he refers to himself in third person like John, the one Jesus loved. He's like, I am the beloved one, right? And then, and then Peter's like, will you sit down with all your lovey-dovey, like mushy-gushy love stuff? Like I'm the rock. Like I'm going to preach, right? I, the gates of hell will not prevail. I'm Peter. And then I'm the greatest. And then Bartholomew's like, uh, excuse me, guys. I'm the greatest. And they're like, Bartholomew, we didn't even know you were a disciple. Who are you? Never even heard of you, Bartholomew. Like, do you even go here? Like, I've never even heard of you. Sit down. And all of a sudden, there's this big fight that breaks out. Who is the greatest among them? And then Jesus, he uses this as an opportunity to, to bring his disciples in and to teach them what true greatness looks like, what, what true servant-hearted leader, what the character of Christians is supposed to be. And so we're going to spend the preponderance of our time really just looking at these next handful of verses where we're going to get these three reasons to serve. Jesus calls them, and here's what Jesus says to them. He says, he says you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, those are the, those are the rich, the wealthy, the elite, those are the, the ones who have it all together, they're the prestigious ones, they're the, they're the rulers, the, the Gentiles. What do they do? How do they lead? They lord over People And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For a moment, I want you to just look down, and I want you to focus right there on verse 45. Where he says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that title right there, Son of Man, is very important. It's, the, it's, it's Jesus' favorite designation for himself in the Gospels. It comes from the, 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 the book of Isaiah, where it talks about the, the Son of Man. The book of Daniel is the Son of Man. That's the Messiah. That's the, the Holy One, the Anointed One of God, the, the promise for all of creation, the, the Son of Man. And then Jesus picks up this title, and 85 times through the four Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Very interesting, because there's a lot of different names that we could use for Jesus. There's a lot of different titles that Jesus goes by. Here's some of the ways that we know Jesus. We know him as the Savior. We know him as the Redeemer, that he is our Lord, that he is the bread of life, that he is the true vine. He is the light of the world. He is the chief shepherd. He is the bright and morning star. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and he is the last. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the way the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. He is the Christ. He is the King. But yet 85 times he says, I am the Son of Man. Why would he do that? Because he identifies with us. Because the Son of Man came not to be served. If anybody could have come to be served, it would have been Jesus. He didn't show up and say, here I am, everybody bow down before me. He didn't come in pride. He didn't come in arrogance, but rather he came in humility. And he came as the son of man, the one who has come to serve. He identifies himself as a servant. That serving is not just something that Jesus did. Serving was who he was. 
Serving wasn't his activity. No, it says here that the Son of Man was his identity. That's why we say we don't just do serving. No, we are servants. Now, here's my question for you. If serving was this important to Jesus, then how important should it be for us? If serving others was this important to Jesus, then how much more important should it be for us? I woke up this morning and I was talking to our staff and team when we arose here this morning, and, and I just had this thought that came through. The, the Bible refers to the church as a body, right? As, as a body. We are a body of Christ. The way that Jesus serves Southeast Texas is through the local church. The way that Jesus serves others is through those who are in a serve team. It's through the body of Christ. Now, at Redemption, we actually do pretty well. The, the average church in America, only about 20% of people who attend a church actually serve in the church. We're over 50%. So, man, we got a church that loves to serve. A church that loves to serve. But I just had this thought this morning. It's like, what would happen if you woke up tomorrow and 50% of your body didn't work? What, what would it look like if you woke up and 50% of your body decided that it just wasn't going to cooperate? It wasn't going to serve its purpose. It wasn't going to do what it was designed to do. How would it feel if 50% of your body just decided that it wasn't going to participate with you that day? Well, in churches all across America, the body is handicapped because 50% of people are not fully functioning in the roles and ways in which God wants them to serve. 50% of people are not serving their purpose in life and through the church. What would it look like if as a church, we all adopted a heart of a servant? What would it look like if every single person who called Redemption Home would adopt the mindset of Jesus, that we're not here to be served, but rather we're here to serve. That I'm not just going to a service on a Sunday, I'm going to be servant on Sunday morning. What would it look like if every single person who called Redemption home would be like Paul who says, have this mind amongst yourselves, that Jesus was a servant. Therefore, I will be a servant as well. In this section, we're going to see three things that Jesus teaches those disciples. Those disciples are like, I want to be great. I want to be the best. I want to sit in the glory seat. And Jesus is like, okay, you want to be the great? You want to be the best? You want to, you want to be able to, to, to be first? Let me tell you how to be first. It's not a race to the top. It's a race to the bottom, my friends. It's only when you learn to serve others where you truly begin to experience life change. Let me give you three reasons why we serve. Number one, serving is how we lead. Look what Jesus says here. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Now here's what I know. The moment that I said leadership, 10% of you in the room, you got really excited. You're like, leadership, I love leadership. I'm a boss. Right? I'm a CEO, I run my own business, like, I got employees that report to me, I'm a team lead, or I have a desire to become a pastor. Like, I love leadership. 10% of you got really excited, and then 90% of you checked out. Because you're like, I'm not a leader. I'm never going to be a leader. I don't want to be a leader. No, thank you. I'm not a leader. But I want you to understand something. Is that everyone is a leader at some level. Every single person is a leader at some level. Here's, here's what John Maxwell, he says, that leadership is 
influence. If you have influence in another person's life, congratulations, you're a leader. You may not be the boss, you may not be the CEO, you may not be the director, but if you are a mom or a dad, you have a leadership in your home. If you are a husband or a wife, you have a leadership in the family. If you are a husband, then you are the spiritual leader over your house. If you have a job, then you have the ability to influence those who are around you. If you are a friend, you have tremendous influence on your friends and their decisions that they are making. No matter who you are, where you're at, every single one of you has a sphere of influence where people look up to you, people count on you, and therefore you are a leader. Every single person is a leader at some different level. The question is not, are you a leader? The question is, are you a good leader? Are you leading people to experience life change, or are you leading people away from life change? Every person is a leader. Here's what Jesus shows us, that the best way to be a leader is by learning to serve others. In this text right here, he's, he's juxtaposing two different antithetical ideas, one of worldly leadership and one of godly leadership. He talks about the Gentiles who lord over them. That is godly lead, That is worldly leadership. That's the way the world works. They exercise authority over them. They say, I'm the boss. I'm the leader. You have to do what I say. I'm in charge. It's my way or the highway. And they lead through fear. They lead through tyranny. They lead through double standards and ultimatums. This is every politician, every athlete, every celebrity, and every person who's virtue signaling on Twitter. And here's what they would say, rules for thee, but, rule, but not for me. That I, I don't have to do what I say. I want you to do what I say and don't do what I do, but rather do what I say. That's the way that the world operates, by lording over people. And Jesus says, but not for my church, not for my people. That's not the way that we lead in the kingdom. That we don't follow worldly leadership, but rather we follow godly leadership. You ever had a boss who led like a worldly leader? Right? You ever had, uh, worked with a person who, who led that way? Right? You ever been in a, a relationship where the other person treated you that way? You ever been in college class where your professor taught that way? You ever had friends that acted that way? Yeah, you probably weren't friends with them for very long. And if not, then welcome to redemption. Either they get saved or you need better friends, all right? <laughs> But when you went to work and you had a boss that led like that, did it just inspire you to be the best that you can be? Did it, did it motivate you to reach your fullest potential? Like, did you wake up every morning just like, I can't wait to go to work, all right? No, you, you probably felt devalued and dehumanized and very discouraged in a toxic environment like that. That's why Jesus says, in the church and as my people, that should be, not be amongst you at all. Instead, we should practice a godly leadership, not by bullying people, but by building them up and not by lording over them, but rather by serving them. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is correcting their character. Because in leadership, character is what matters most. See, capacity will get you in the door. Calling might get you an interview, but it is character that is going to sustain you. There's a lot of people who have great callings, but they have terrible character, and therefore their calling doesn't last for very long. And so it's the character of the leader that matters most. Jesus understands this because in just a few weeks after this story, Jesus is going to be arrested, crucified, he is going to die, and then he's going to hand his mission over to these disciples. And the way that they learn to lead now is going to set up the trajectory for the church for the next 2,000 years. And so Jesus wants to make sure that he gets their character in check. He's talking here about their character because if they want to continue the work of Christ, then they need to adopt the lifestyle of Christ and they need to learn how to lead like Christ leads. As Christians, we need to learn how to lead like Christ would lead. And how does Christ lead? He leads by serving. 
So what are some of the qualities of a Christ-like leader? I see that there's five in this text. Let's take a moment and just look at them. The first thing is that a Christ-like leader is a good listener. Here's what Jesus does. He sees them arguing and fighting amongst themselves, and yet he still calls them to sit down and have a conversation. He doesn't just go off the handle and say, hey, you knocked that off. Stop talking about that. I don't want to hear that anymore. We're had this conversation. No, he pulls them in and says, okay, what you said, let's go ahead and talk about that for a little bit. Go ahead and just share your heart with me. How are you doing? What is Jesus doing? He's modeling listening. Number two, he's humble. A Christ-like leader is humble. Here's what Jesus could have said. Who's the greatest? Me. I'm the greatest. That's why they call me the I am because there ain't nobody like me, right? I am the greatest, right? He could have said that, but that's not what he does. Instead, he just listens and he practices humility. See, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather it's thinking of yourself less. And Jesus models that before them. Number three, Jesus, he shows that a Christ-like leader is appreciative. Now, you could read this on the surface. He's like, what idiots? How, how did they ask that question? Who's the greatest? Who's going to sit at the right hand of God in glory? But I, I don't read it like that. Like Jesus was not upset with them. But rather I believe that Jesus appreciated them. Because he knew the intention of the question they're asking. They just want to be close to him. They've already laid down their entire lives to follow him. And so they're saying, hey, when we get into glory, like, can we be as close to you as possible? I believe that in this moment Jesus is actually appreciative of the question, though it was misguided. But underneath the surface, it actually was a good question. And so Jesus is going to have to redirect them in a moment. But I believe that Jesus was appreciative of the sacrifice over the last three years these disciples made. Then number four, a Christ-like leader is trustworthy. Why would they even think that this was an appropriate question to ask? You know why? Because for three years, Jesus has built trust with them. That they are not afraid to ask a question. They feel safe. They feel valued. And they know that they can ask a question without fear of retaliation. Jesus had spent that time building that trust in the heart of his disciples to where they weren't afraid of failure. And so they felt safe enough to ask a difficult question because Jesus was trustworthy. Then number five, Jesus was caring. Did Jesus care for his disciples? Absolutely. If he didn't care for them, they wouldn't have made it past chapter two. He'd be like, I'm done with you. Let's move on. Right? But no, Jesus cared for them because Jesus saw the potential that is inside of them. And he knew what their future was. And he knew the process in which they are all on. Jesus demonstrates these things. And so right now, some of you are thinking, okay, that's great for Jesus, but that's not me. Maybe that's a qualities for you as our pastor, but that's not for me. What does this do with me? I thought, Byron, the goal of this sermon was to teach me the core value, to, to, to manipulate me to go to next step so I can join a team. But I don't feel that right now. Now all I'm just thinking about is how Jesus... Jesus leads others and how that applies to me. Here's how it applies to you. Because you can take these same principles and values and then you can apply them outside of the team and into your family. Could you imagine as a, as a, as a spouse, if you learn to practice these leadership qualities with your spouse, if you learn to listen and to be appreciative and to care and to build trust, if you learn these values as a parent, if you would lead your children with listening ears and with a, a humble heart and with compassion and with caring and showing appreciation towards your children, imagine putting these practices at work on the team that you go to or in your college or with your dorm mates. Imagine with your friends, if you learn to practice these values that you learn through serving, how will that transform your life beyond a Sunday morning? 
Because when you come to redemption, you understand this, is that we don't use people to grow the church. No, we use the church to grow people. That, that who you are is more important to us than what you do. And it's when you join a team, you're going to learn life lessons. You're going to learn values. You're going to be strengthened. You're going to be encouraged. And you're going to take the lessons you learn from a team. You're going to go home. You're going to be the best dad you could possibly be. You're going to be the most amazing wife that there ever was. You're going to be the best parents. And that, that you're going to lead your family. And you're going to lead your friends with the values that you discovered through serving other people. And so it's not just what you can do for us, but rather it's the church creating a system to where you can take these principles beyond the Sunday into your everyday life. That's why it's about leadership. Every single one of you is a leader at some level. The question is not, are you a leader? The question is, are you leading well? Jesus teaches us the best way to lead. And what is that? We lead by serving others. And then he's going to teach us something else. He says this. He says that, that serving is how we learn. Look what, what happens next. But whoever will be great among you must be the servant, and whoever be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. What is Jesus doing here? He is, he is teaching them. He's teaching them what true leadership looks like. But number two, he's teaching them what true greatness looks like. Inside all of us, there is a desire that we want to be great. Sometimes in the church, we can make you feel guilty about that, and we want to suppress your greatness. But I don't believe that that desire is actually a bad thing. That greatness is actually a good thing that God has placed greatness inside each and every one of us. The question that we need to ask is what is our definition of greatness? Greatness in and of itself is not bad. But for many people, their definition of greatness actually needs to be replaced. Because listen, who wants to be average? Raise your hand if you want to be average. You want to be mediocre. Who, who, wants to be, who, who wants to be less than their best at anything? No, everybody wants to be the best. Like you wanna, who wants to be like an, an average mom? Anybody? Wanna be an average mom? No, nobody, nobody. Who wants to be like the world's okayest dad? No, no, we get shirts and what do they say? World's best dad. Because we want to be the best dad that there is. How funny would it be if you're like walking through Parkdale this Christmas and you see two guys wearing world's best dad t-shirts and all of a sudden they're like, hey, I'm the best dad. No, I'm the best dad. All right, let's fight it out right now. And right there in the middle of the mall, you have like two dads duking it out for the title, right? That would be amazing. <laughs> world's best dad. But inside all of us, there is a desire for greatness. Like, who wants to go to an average church? Who wants to go to a great church? Come on, somebody. Want to go to a great church? Welcome to redemption. See, the desire for greatness is not bad. It just depends on the definition. Like, do you desire to be great for your glory, or do you desire to be great for God's glory? Do you desire to be great for your fame, or do you desire for greatness for his fame? Do you desire to be great so people can praise you, or do you desire so that others would praise him? Notice in this moment, Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness, but rather he redefines what greatness actually is. He says, if you want to be great, it's not when others serve you, but rather it is when you learn to serve others. Greatness comes not when you come in first, but whenever others come before you. Greatness is not when you get your way. Greatness is when you get out of the way. That true greatness is not a race to the top, but rather it is a race to the bottom. It is only in losing your life that you find your life. It is in giving to others that you are blessed. Do you want to be first? Come in last. Do you want to be great? Then learn how to serve others. He doesn't rebuke 
their desire for greatness, he just redefines what greatness truly is. And so this is the reason that as your pastor, like maybe I come off a little strong sometimes when I'm like, hey, have you got to next steps? Hey, you should go to next steps. Hey, I can't wait to see you at next steps. Are you on a serve team? Why are you not on a serve team? When are you going to get on a serve team? Are you in a small group? You are. When are you going to lead a small group? The reason why I'm just constantly pushing you towards this, and here's the reason, it's because I am pushing you to greatness. I'm pushing you to be great. You're, you're resisting greatness. You're, 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 you're pushing against God's purpose for your life. I believe that inside every single one of you, there is greatness in this room. That every single one of you is a 10 at something. There is gold inside every single person here this morning. And it is serving that you learn how to dig out the gold that God has placed in you. Where you discover the gifts and purposes that God has for you. God made you on purpose and for a purpose. And it is only when we learn that we discover what that purpose truly is. It's serving others, which is the definition of greatness. Right, when, when we were kids, they'd ask us, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, if you're like me, 40 plus years old, then what you, you think is like, most of us, we desired to be like police officers or, or firemen or, or veterinarians, right? Something that would be in the helping profession. But the world has changed a lot due to technology and social media. They asked, they asked teenagers, what do you want to be when you grow up? And between the age of 10 and 17, here's the number one profession teenagers said. They want to be a YouTube star. They want to be a YouTube, right? They want to be a celebrity. They want to be a social media influencer. Because the world has taught them that greatness is when other people like and comment on your Facebook post. Greatness is when somebody shares. Greatness is whenever somebody subscribes to you. They think greatness is whenever somebody compliments your outfit. People think that greatness is when people notice you. Greatness is when people pay attention to you. They think that that's what the definition of greatness is. And God help us as a society because we're getting even further away from biblical values and truth. When the truth and the reality is, is greatness is not what others do for you, but rather it is what you do for others. Listen, the church, my friends, needs less celebrity celebrities and more servants. This idea of success has creeped into the church and it has robbed our true definition of greatness. Like we don't need more people trying to take the glory from God, but we need more people who are going to give the glory to him. We don't need people who are going to take the focus off of the mission and put it on themselves, but we need people who are going to serve full-heartedly and passionately to be able to fulfill the great commission that God has placed us on. We don't need more stages. We need more altars. We don't need more rock stars. We need more worshipers. We don't need more bands. We need more boldness. We need more believers. We don't need more spectators. We need participators. We don't need audiences. We need congregations. We don't need heroes. We already got a hero. His name is Jesus. We need some more people to get in, get their hands dirty, and get to work and start helping. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray eagerly to the Lord of the harvest. The church needs less celebrities, and we we need more servants because the future of the church is not on TikTok. The future of the church is found when people serve others. And so it's through this that we, we learn. Let me tell you about some people who in my eyes are great. Say, Byron, who's great? Is it, is it you, you? You preach every week. Are you the greatest? I'm not. Ask Ashley. She'll tell you I'm not. Is it Trevor? Is it Ethan? Is it, is it JC? JC girl, she's better than the rest of us, but she's still not the greatest. 
Say, well, when it comes to the church, who is the greatest? Let me tell you, in my eyes, who's great. You know who's great? Lewis and Diane. Because they, they work all week long. Lewis scheduled to serve one Sunday as an usher, but yet he serves all three services. They have three amazing children, and they still lead a small group on Wednesday nights. To me, it's Emma Ray, who she's a college girl, freshman, moved here from California. And the first thing she did was go to Next Steps, and she serves every single week watching the little ones at Redemption Kids. To me, she's greatness. When, when I think about greatness, I think about Cruz and Morgan Torres, who even though they serve on Sunday... They also lead a small group for high school students at Redemption Youth every single week. That, my friends, is the definition of greatness. I think about Dom and Krista Hebert, who Dom is actually leading in our production team. Uh, Krista, she serves in, in, in the setup team and welcome team. But then they also serve by teaching parents how to be good witnesses to their children at home. To me, that is what true greatness actually look like. I think about Rachel Burson and Sarah Black and, and Patty Martin. I think about the, the women who are in the back right now in an 8 by 8 storage closet on our prayer team interceding for souls and for salvations and for the word to go out and to transform and change people's lives. They're sitting in the back right now surrounded by boxes, but yet they are boldly going before the throne on your behalf. And you will never see them on a stage. They will never have their name in lights, and they're never going to go viral. But here's what Jesus says, that to me that is more important than celebrities. I'm looking for servants. I'm not looking for people who are going to take the glory. I'm looking for people who are going to give the glory. I'm not looking for people who want recognition. I want people who are going to point people to me. So you may never know who they are, but God does. Nobody may ever know your name, but your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. God knows your name. God is not looking for celebrities. God is looking for servants. The church is not built on the talents of a few. The church is built on the sacrifice of the many. We need less celebrities and we need more people who are humble and willing to serve. It's in serving you learn what leadership looks like. It's in serving you learn what greatness looks like. And then lastly, number three, it's serving where you learn what love looks like. In serving we learn how to love others. Here's what Jesus says. Interesting line. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. But he didn't leave it there. He said, there's one other thing. To give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived his life as a servant. So much so that he gave his life to serve us. That he gave his life as a ransom for many. Who did Jesus serve in his life? He served everyone. Preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, inspiring, building hope, praying for the sick, welcoming the outcasts, loving on the orphans and the widows, to be able to raise the dead. Everyone Jesus met, Jesus served. And here's why we know this is true. It's because Jesus didn't just say he loved us, he showed us what love truly is. See, Jesus didn't just come and say, I love you. No, but he demonstrated his love for us by serving us. Say, so how has Jesus served? Let me just look at some of the ways he's, he's served. Jesus serves by giving us the gospel. He brought heaven to earth. 
He brings healing to our bodies. He nourishes our souls. He gives strength for the day. He gives us joy in the morning. He performs miracles. He answers prayers. He gives meaning to marriage. He gives purpose to singleness. He provides financially. He distributes peace. He gives spiritual gifts. He shepherds the church. He forgives our sins. He prepares a place for you in heaven. He mediates between you and God. He intercedes on your behalf. He is the son of man and he came to serve. That he doesn't just say I love you, but he demonstrates what love actually is by serving. My friends, serving is how we love. Write this down. We serve others because Jesus served us. So why should I serve, pastor? Here's the reason why you should serve. It's because Jesus first served you. Let us not be the type of church that just says Jesus loves you. Let us be the type of church that shows the love of Jesus. How do we do that? By helping first-time guests park their car. By helping single moms get their kids checked in and redemption kids so they can hear the message of Jesus and they can worship God without distraction. How do we serve others? We serve it with a warm smile and a firm handshake in a lobby by spending Saturdays passing out turkey to those who are in need or by volunteering at the Hope Women's Resource Clinic. How? By discipling new believers, by remembering a person's name, by holding open a door. And when we do that, we are serving others and we are serving Christ himself. When Jesus was on earth, what did he do? He served. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. So now the question becomes, well, if Jesus did that on earth, what is Jesus doing now in heaven? How does Jesus serve others while in heaven? Here's how Jesus does it. He does it through the church. He does it through you. That's why the Bible calls you the body of Christ or the hands and the feet of Jesus. When you serve others, you're serving Christ. When you bless others, you're blessing Christ. When you help others, you're helping Christ. You say, that sounds strange. How, how do I help Christ by, by helping others? Well, here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. He says it like this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, you also have done it for me. See, but those don't seem like big things. Listen to Jesus. It's the little things that make the biggest difference. How can you serve Christ whenever a single mom is struggling in the parking lot and you open the door for her? It's the same thing as if you were opening that door for Christ. Whenever you see a line at the kids' check-in and you're putting the sticker tags on the kiddos, you're actually serving Christ. Whenever a first-time guest rolls into the parking lot and they see a party, right? Well, you're actually just throwing a party for Christ. Whenever you serve in Redemption Kids, you're not just serving children. You're serving Christ. 
as a worship team. You're not just serving our church, but rather you're ministering to the heart of Christ. You say, but that doesn't seem like much. It doesn't take a lot. All it takes is for you to adopt the mindset of Jesus, of being a servant. And it's the little things in the kingdom of God that make the biggest difference. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus says this line. It's very fascinating. Here's what he says. The master will say to them, well done, my good and faithful. What's the word? See, my friends, serving is not our activity. It is our identity. Serving is not just what we do but a servant is who we are. And I long for every single person in this room to to hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because when you learn to serve, you learn to be like Jesus. Because we are most like Jesus when we serve.